<laughs> this is another one I was a, a little bit tempted, a little bit tempted to uh, to not actually do. <clears throat> another weekly video that is. Uh, it's all good. <laughs> so today, what are we at? 18th November 2022. Today is 1,052 days since Charlotte came to Australia. And yesterday was the first day we have spent apart since then, which is really, really weird. <laughs> Has anyone else had an experience of something really strange that happened during COVID and now you have to try and get over it? It's not long, so she's gone back to Norway. Uh, so she jumped on a plane. Well, she left here 24 hours and 31 minutes ago, and I'm I'm not counting the seconds. I'm <laughs> just like sticking to the hours and minutes. Went back to Norway. Now, I am exactly six days from now going to be sitting at the airport with the kids, about to head to Norway ourselves. So it's not too bad. But holy shit, this is this is weird. It's really weird. We had. Uh, we had two instances, two instances, two periods of not sleeping in the same room, which was the two times she had COVID. But it was like upstairs and downstairs, and you could go outside and wave through a mask. It's super, super weird. And I, I, I was saying to the, I think I was saying to the kids or show someone yesterday. I don't know. It's all a bit of a blur at the moment. I don't think I have ever in my life spent this much time with one person, probably my mother when I was a baby. <laughs> like, that's it. Yeah. Dad was a pilot. I definitely didn't spend that much time with him. He would fly places. Um, <clears throat> there has just never been an occasion where I have not had a night away from someone, probably other than my mum, for 1,051 days. And it's not that I'm fatuating on the, on the date, but it was... We're just like, when, when did you actually come here? Because it, it feels like a long time ago. Uh, and it was sometime in Feb 2020. And it was weird then, wasn't it? Like, we, we were all there. <laughs> we were all there in Feb 2020. Remember what it's like. Where it was like, we were making jokes. And I, I don't think it's it's incorrect to say that, because at the time, it seemed a little bit funny. I remember sitting in Heathrow with Ari about to fly back from uh, from London and before that Norway, uh, and Charlotte was going to be following soon after. We were sitting in Heathrow with and Lars as well. I'll chuck him in too. <laughs> Ari and Lars and I were sitting there in a lounge in Heathrow, making jokes about it. Uh, you know, cough, cough, oh, COVID, and then everything got really, really weird. But so we've spent yeah almost three years just not having the longest we've had apart in those three years, is I did a day trip to Sydney. <laughs> so, like, I got up out of bed next to her here one day and I drove to Brisbane and I flew to Sydney and I cybered for an hour or something and then I went back to the airport, back to Brisbane, drove back down here and went back to bed together. So, yeah, that's really weird. All right, who's here? Wayne. G'day, Wayne. Trady Trev. <laughs> Troy and gang, it's just, just me today, mate. It's really just, it's really freaking weird. I'm a little bit dressed up because I do have a Christmas party to go to, so it's not all bad news. They've got a, a neighbourhood Christmas party. It's going to be the first party I've gone to in my own in nearly three years. Uh, but, yeah, it's not all bad news. 
Charles, Andre, Steve. Bonjour from Beaujolais. I have been to Beaujolais, believe it or not. So there you go. Uh, yeah. Well, it's not that I'm heading back there soon, but I guess next week we'll be back in Europe. That's something, right? All right, let's talk about sponsors. I do have a lot of stuff today. There's always a lot of stuff. And, uh, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm making light of it, but it, it, like it, it, it is really tough just suddenly going like nearly three years of, of – and also living in each other's pockets, because that always is, almost sounds like a negative connotation, but, but being so close, and then suddenly it's just like, whoosh, for a week. But, you know, it's still, it's still weird. Um, I don't even know where I was going with that. Jeez. All right. Sponsor. Let's just do the re- – oh, that's where I was going with that. Having a routine, and even in some of the other, like, really, I say dark, harder times of late uh, – the routine of doing this and doing the blog and everything else, it does it does give me stability and consistency, which is good. Speaking of stability and consistency, Veronis, <laughs> who has been a very stable, consistent sponsor, reducing your SAS blast radius with data-centric security for AWS, G Drive, Box, Salesforce, Slack, and more and as I've said many many times, uh, a massive thanks to Veronis for being uh, not just a great sponsor but a great company as well. And I have spent time in many different continents <laughs> with Veronis. Um, here's a fun Veronis story. This is not in the sponsorship deal, by the way. I was in Israel, and as part of the time in Israel, I visited Veronis, uh, and we had a great time together. And this was 2019, weird time for many reasons for me, pre-COVID. And one of the cool things about Tel Aviv is they've got scooters everywhere, right? It's like the electric scooters that you can you can hire. And I hired one of these. I was hiring a lot of these. And I was just, I was just zooming around. The weather was nice. I'd never been to the Middle East before. My first time, I was super, super enjoyed Israel. And I felt so self-sufficient. I really don't like getting public transport or taxis or things like that. You just never know. But when I was on the scooter, I was my own man. <laughs> I went wherever I wanted to go. And the footpaths were basically empty. So I was like, okay, I'll just ride the scooter down the footpath. And I'm riding the scooter down the footpath. And suddenly someone yells at me. And uh, it was two cops sitting under a tree. And it... I have an image in my mind, I'm not going to say what that image was, but it was, it was just, it was two, two cops who looked like they did more sitting than walking, sitting under the tree in the shade and called over to me. And I was like, oh, someone wants to say hello. You know, like this would just be a nice, friendly thing. And they, um, they call me over. And by the time I come over and I see they've got like police badges and everything, I was like, oh, shit, I shouldn't have done that. Uh, and then like, passport, passport. Now, normally when I'm traveling, and I'm out and about, I try to avoid carrying my passport because my rationale is that I'm more likely to have it stolen from my person than from my hotel room somewhere. And I think from memory, I think I might have said I didn't have it. Maybe I forgot. Anyway, I ended up having to give them my passport. Uh, and they don't speak any any English, so that's that's not helping. And they just, they're writing all this stuff, and i got paperwork. And eventually I got my passport back. But I had this moment, like, shit, if I don't get my passport back, it's like, where do I go? So anyway, I get this paperwork, and it turns out I've gotten a fine for riding a scooter on a footpath, which is apparently is not allowed. Uh, 
And the Verona's angle is, I, I think I went out to dinner with some Verona's people. This is the most off-topic sponsorship message ever. And I had had trouble paying the park ticket because you, you, it's like you go into the website and everything is in Hebrew. And I, I have no Hebrew. I don't really understand what the letters mean because they're – and you, you'd go like in and out of English and Hebrew and I couldn't pay. Anyway, Verona's picked up the ticket for me. So massive thank you to Verona's for uh, sponsoring my my blog this week and for picking up my uh, scooter ticket after having ridden on a footpath in Tel Aviv. Matt's here. Hey, Matt's a live one. While Twitter was still around to tell me about it. Oh. I, I can't look away from Elon's tweets. Now, he seems very convinced that there's more people on Twitter than ever. He's, he's like, you know, biggest days ever. I, I really, really wanted to survive because it has been such a massive part of my online life. And I don't say that just from a selfish reason, but it, it is a, a lovely nexus of the infosec stuff uh, and I follow some car stuff on there and some travel stuff. Uh, and then I tweet about beer and people get upset. And I was like, that's a nice mix. So I, I want it to survive. I'm optimistic. Like, I, I kind of feel as a bit as he is, I think, I think he's smart enough to actually make it work. I'm optimistic. I'll keep my Mastodon account there just in case, but optimistic. Okay, let me talk about some other stuff this week. Uh, many, many different things happened. <laughs> now... I got links to these somewhere in my notes here. Schools, device management, and admin rights. Now I'm going to uh, I'm going to wait and see how this one pans out before giving too much more background. Nah, no, stuff it. We'll just give some of it now. All right. So here's here's the background. Now I think this is uh, partly a teachable moment, as I say. Pop open my iPad here because I was having a. Uh, Conversation with Ari, our 13-year-old son. Now, this was whilst I was on the plane to go down to Canberra and talk to the AFP, our Aussie Federal Police, last week. Uh, and Ari sends me this message. This is classic. He's taken a photo of his Windows PC, and because I'm a responsible parent, I use the parental controls, which means that the child, even though he's 13, does not have admin rights on his machine. Part of the reason is, I've seen the shit that his mates install on their PC. He's not getting admin rights. He does not need admin rights. He's taken this photo. Uh, and the photo here says, uh, do you want to allow this app to make changes to your device? A normal sort of Windows UAC kind of prompt. Safe exam browser, verified publisher. And then there's a big German name I can't pronounce. It seems legit. And then it says, to continue, enter an admin username password. It's got my personal Microsoft account there, and it's asking for the PIN that I use for that account on the device. Now, Ari's words are... <laughs> <laughs> so we are doing a science dummy test, and we had to install a sketchy thing. Very proud of his nomenclature there. Had to install a sketchy thing that needs your Microsoft password. Sir told me to just ask you what to do, whether you send it to me or just leave it. So this is great. This 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 is a moment where he can learn something. And like I I I know him well enough, and he's a smart enough, switched enough kid, aware enough of the industry, he would have been going, Oh, this is a bad idea. So I've replied to him. And I 
I didn't want to completely chuck him under the bus because I'm conscious, like, he's a kid there sitting in a class and a, a, an authority figure has just made a request. <laughs> and I said, as I'm sure Sir knows, it would be irresponsible to ask someone else for their password. It would also be irresponsible for a child to have admin rights on a PC, thus allowing them to install any random software product. And then I did the, hmm, thinky face. And then I promised to follow it up. Uh, now, I am following it up with the school and I am making progress and I am happy with the way the school is dealing with it. Uh, and I think that there will be some good things that come out of it. Not sure what in terms of what I'm going to share publicly. However, it did prompt me to post a question to Twitter that got much engaged, <laughs> even in the current Twittering climate. Now, my question was this. I said, Dear parent friends, I have a school tech cyber question for you all. Does your child's school provide any guidance around the use of native parental control on their devices? App store restrictions, enforceable screen time limits, purchase approvals, etc. Now, this was not a poll. It was a question. But let's say empirically, anecdotally rather, 95% of people came back. I mean, there's just no controls whatsoever. Like there's zero, zero, zero controls. Uh, and as I said here in the response, so I added to this, I said, I'm curious based on my own experiences, which I'll share later, partly now. And after observing that most parents have absolutely no idea, firstly, what they're doing with tech. And secondly, that these controls even exist for free. Uh, I followed up said, holy shit, did I open a can of worms? The, the near unanimous consensus is that there's no guidance given by schools or worse. And I've quote tweeted someone here, this is Tim Serrett, and Tim has said, nothing well communicated. There are some resources on the school uh, parent portal, but that's about it. In fact, they asked me to turn the controls off so that they can install apps. There we go. Now, there is a myriad of different issues here not least of which is that there are very different models for different schools as to how kids use devices. Uh, I suspect that we are in an era where most school kids, at least once they get to a certain age, do a reasonable portion, nice caveat to turn there, reasonable portion of their things on a device. Now, for our son, I think it was year five, and he needed to have a laptop. Now, for those of you from other parts of the world, uh, in Australia, we have private schools and public schools. It might be a little bit different. He's in a private school. Uh, we pay more money for that. They tend to have a little bit more techy stuff a bit earlier. But I think in all the public schools and everything else, at some point in time, you get the devices. So anyway, he's had a laptop. Uh, and, and it effectively, based on their requirements, needed to be a Microsoft device uh, <laughs> because the requirements originally were like, the device should be touchscreen. All right, well, there's all your, all your Apple things gone because it also has to be a laptop and not an iPad. Is a Chromebook touchscreen? I'm not even sure. But you're pretty limited in your, in your options. So he's been in the Microsoft ecosystem. Our daughter, now she's at a different school. She's at a girl's school, totally different topic, pretty much on the fence about this whole thing. The requirements at her school, and I think it must have been, oh, she's year four, it must have been the start of year three. She had to have an iPad. And it had to have a keyboard. So, you know, typical Apple keyboard sort of thing. So they're in the Apple ecosystem. So we're sort of growing up with, you know, half of them having one of these devices, holding an iPad in my hand for the listeners later on, and half of them having a you know, PC or something. So we're seeing both sides of it. Now, my view on both of these has been for kids, uh, there is no good reason to have admin rights, whether that be 
classic admin rights on your Windows PC or the ability to do admin-y things on your iThing, there's just no good reason. They are very different ecosystems to live within. Uh, that the case with my son the other day, we're going to need to install that for him if it is something that he needs. He's going to have to come home, we're going to have to do this. And, and one of the points that I have been making through the appropriate channels is that kids shouldn't have these rights. And as such, if they need things, then we, we just got to communicate about it. A little bit easier for my daughter with the eye things because the parental control is about asking for permission to install something. Excellent. So she says, hey, I would like access to blah. And there's a little permission thing that pops up on my device straight away. And you just go, yeah, fine, no problem. But it is fascinating how many kids have no control whatsoever. And, and the discussion I've had since sort of illustrated pretty much what everyone on the Twitters has said, which is that there's no guidance. Uh, one of the threads that came through a lot on Twitter was guidance around things like, yeah, they just ask us to install spyware, you know, like stalkerware, stuff that we know has privileged access to content well beyond what the native controls give you. Uh, and see how many of those are in Have I Been Pwned. I think there's at least three different stalkerware applications in Have I Been Pwned now, full of dumped text messages, photos, and things like that, which is just nuts. Let me have a look at the comments. Um, Matt says, what's the article regarding the HLBP breach all about? I'm saving that to last because that's the funniest one. So you'll have to stick around for that one, mate. Trader Trader says, lol, uh, that's how I learned about computers was breaking them as a kid. <laughs> yes, I didn't have dial-up until I went to high school. So uh, I didn't have internet until I started university in 95. Um, and I don't think we had dial-up at school. I remember getting in school for things, or get, getting in trouble in school for things I did with computers, which I'm not even going to talk about on this friendly podcast. It would be an over-beers discussion somewhere in person. George says, and schools will tell you to get stuffed if you rock up running Linux. I'll tell you. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> Reinstalled Windows on nephew's laptops so they could be provisioned. MDM they use can remotely wipe kids' devices. So then this is as it relates to sort of MDM, mobile device management, BYOD, we all know what that one is, and all the rest of it. This is where we do have this big blend, right? So we've got Ari going to school. He's got a PC. Got Elle going to school. She's got a, a an iPad. Uh, both BYOD. There are no uh, certificates or other device or profile management or things like that that they need to install, which in, in our case is great. There are other schools where the school will provide the device, or there are other schools where they will want some sort of profile or MDM style thing installed on the device. And, and this is where we have this like this massive spectrum. And this is just in Australia, like let alone when you get to other parts of the world and they run things completely differently again. Rob says, option one, set device to child and find that you can't give your child access to things they want need. Option two, after an amount of time, get to worn down, you give them an adult account. Here's a fun story. I think I've told this one before, but maybe you haven't heard it. So Ari's over here one day with, uh, with one of his mates and his parents are here too. We're having a barbecue. It's good fun. Sun's out. It's a nice Aussie day. And the kid's parent is a doctor, a GP. And she says, look, the son, I won't name him, the son is having some problems with his machine. You know, can, I, can I take a look at it? Because I'm the IT guy. So yeah, I'll take a look at it. And it turns out that he is logging onto his school laptop with her Microsoft account. 
Now, I don't know how much stuff a GP takes from work to home and how much of it goes into their own Outlook.com account or anything like that. But I was like, what, what are you why are you doing this? There is an option here for free, which means that your patient's data doesn't like get exposed to your child and, and everyone else who's going to use his laptop because that's what kids do. Uh, the technologies exist, but parents are just bad at it. George says, uh, oh, yeah, and if you had to be local admin uh, to get one as well. Now, this is where I think schools have a role to play, and, and this is where I have a role to play in helping the schools understand this. We have the native controls within the devices to give the children. In fact, I had this discussion with both my kids yesterday. It's like, would you guys agree you can do everything that you need to do? There is never a point where the controls, which are just the native controls, stop you from doing something that you need to do. And meanwhile, Ari's like, when you talk to my school, please don't let them know that you're my dad because if they start locking down devices, I don't want to be responsible for it because kids want to install any random Chrome extension they can. Um, so anyway, we have the technology, we have the controls, and we have the ability to do it, particularly in the Apple ecosystem. This is a really, really clean ecosystem for parental controls, everything from uh, screen time, the amount of time you can have, to the times of day you can have, to a parent being able to enter a PIN or remotely authorize things like app purchases and things like that. It's lovely. It's all built in. It's all free. Wayne says, I use Microsoft Tools. If my son wants to install, I get an email notification via app. Now, Wayne, I'm sure I've seen that before myself as well. I could not see that having happened in this case. So I need to check. Did he... Look at the message he sent me again like was there a button which was send request because that's what my face close enough to face it enders that's what happens normally hmm do you want to allow this app to make changes the only way you can click yes is you got to enter the pin there's a bit about show more details but i'm just not sure that he has the ability here to request access but i know i've seen that before with one of the kids microsoft devices my daughter does have a laptop that she uses at home as well George says, so George is certificate-based Wi-Fi. Uh, Jenison, an Australian having a barbecue. Unlikely, yeah, I know. Merrick, my kids are in New South Wales. Public primary school. The school uses Chromebooks. She uses a Chromebook at home when she can log into a, a NSW. For a moment, I thought it was not safe for work. NSW account, uh, education account, is very much locked down by the department. And it's, I'm, I guess I'm okay with that model too if the school provides something and it's locked down and it's the school's view of what kids should have access to. Stefan's here. G'day, Stefan. Just learned PowerShell and set it up to be able to log into remotely on an admin account, set up a VPN profile, and boom, full parental control. But now you're sysadmin and won't have time for anything. <laughs> Probably not going to happen. <laughs> Probably not going to happen, Stefan. All right, something else that, uh, that almost didn't happen. HTML email signatures. Oh, boy. Why is this still a thing? So I think I touched on this briefly last week, but we did eventually get this to work. Uh, we got it to work to a minimum viable product, <laughs> for want of a better term. And what I was explaining the other day is HTML is like there is a spec for this. Uh, I have a book from 1995 that I learned to code with that's still pretty much correct in terms of how you do HTML. Yes, we have CSS now and other things as well. But for the most part, you could write the HTML and it would work. And then there was this period of time, we call it 
the Internet Explorer 6 Dark Ages. <laughs> like there was this period where you would write code and HTML, plus some people argue it's not code, and it would look like one thing on one client and another thing on other. They're both browsers. But why is Firefox doing this or, or geez, what was it back in the day? Netscape is doing this and Internet Explorer is doing that. Uh, and then we fixed it, unless you're trying to write an HTML signature for an email client. Now, why do you want to do this? Because a bunch of people, after I tweeted this, were like, just make it text. Well, there's lots of reasons why text is not great for this. Uh, number one, you can't put your photo there. I have a nice smiley photo. Uh, I think it adds personality. I like it. We wanted the same with Charlotte as well, because it just, uh, it's a nice connection. I wanted the Have I Been Pined logo. I'm putting more of that on the things that I send. I wanted my social icons. Text is kind of crap for all of that. Like, it just looks crap. A few people said, well, just have one image with everything in it. And that feels so dirty. Thank you, Siri. Uh, it feels so dirty. <laughs> my Apple Watch Ultra is still telling me to clear the water after my last outing into the swimming pool. Um, it's, it feels kind of crap because like when you, you know when you go to a website and you look at it and there's something in your developer mind which is like, all that text, that's an image. They're cheating, you know, and you know it's just not quite right. And I didn't want to do that. But the problem is you end up with a situation where it's even stupid stuff, like you've got two table cells. They're both TD or T-aligned to the, or V-aligned to the top. I don't know what I'm talking about. They're both V-aligned to the top. You have images of exactly the same height in there, but in one table cell they're a different height to another on Outlook, which also, even though you've got like no table cell padding, cuts off the sides of the image. But then on the eye thing, it's like, it was painful. Anyway, I fixed it. People have been saying, well, why don't you, why don't you open source my shitty, shitty HTML that makes my signature look okay? You know, chuck it on GitHub or something. It's miserable HTML. It's, I, I feel like I should have something taken away from me if I put code like that in, in open source. But we did get it to work. We did get it to work sufficiently. And a lot of it was done by just like literally going, I'm going to do this differently, such that there are not two table cells. Uh, there are going to be one table cell, and at least then everything kind of lines up. But it is crazy how hard this is. Now, last week as well, some people were recommending MJMS or, or something or other to help you make responsive emails. That seemed to be a good solution if you're designing an entire email template just to get a signature right where you're trying to get pixel perfect, didn't work so well. So uh, I got there, hand rolling my own. And now the problem is, how do you make the one that works on Outlook on your PC work on Outlook on your iThing? Because you can't copy and paste it when it's got embedded images because those embedded images don't transfer across. So do you have to reference online images, which means making remote requests to assets, which is then a private... Yeah. That's painful. George says, most schools block VPNs. Sounds feasible. Uh, Lee says, Gmail has the worst HTML renderer, except Outlook, which uses the word HTML renderer. So as part of my trial by fire explaining to Charlotte how difficult it was to email signatures, I had to talk about a thing once known as front page. Now, if you have ever seen the HTML that front page used to create, and that was the flashbacks I was having, because it's not like it's not like the latest HTML rendering engine that's sitting there in the latest version of Outlook. It's some screwy front page reminiscent sort of thing that just creates ridiculous numbers of styles and classes and weird stuff. 
Josh says, this is why companies like Exclaimer still exist. They handle and inject the HTML for you, and all credit to them works pretty well. I do wonder how much a third-party tool gets it consistently right across devices without doing the same sort of screwy stuff I had to do. And maybe that's the value proposition. It will do the screwy stuff for you and take the pain away from you. Lisa's front page, the good old days. Almost like the HTML that Photoshop's like, oh, I remember that. So you could create an image in Photoshop and export that, and it would slice the image up into HTML. We also once had this thing called the marquee tag. Uh, true story. Now we just got carousels and crap like that. Let's talk about ransoms. It's a fun topic. I posted a poll the other day because I was just curious. Like I, I, I had a pretty good gut feel of the general gist of what the numbers would be, but I was curious as to what they would actually stack up to be in a Twitter poll. Now I'm going to read the poll and then I'm going to explain why I worded it this way. As it's newsworthy at present, a quick poll. Should there be a government ban on paying a ransom to stop breached data from being publicly leaked? Now, I knew that it would be an overwhelming yes. Uh, it was a sp it rounds to 61% yes, 39% no. So you're almost twice as many people saying yes to no. Now, then I got a lot of responses from people who clearly either didn't read or didn't understand the question because I get to hear things like, well, if it if it helps recover your files, well, then that makes sense. Why would you outlaw that? And, and the problem is, is that I deliberately said data from being publicly leaked. See, back in the day, ransomware used to be an attack against availability. Your things would get encrypted. And if you bought the key, you could decrypt your things. So the availability component is I had my things and then they got encrypted and then I didn't have my things and I bought the key and now I do have my things. And you know that if you pay the ransom, it's worked because your things are back. Over time, the lights just turned off. That's something I'm going to change here. I'll tell you about this in a moment. <laughs> you know how I had so much trouble with big ass fans? I have more big ass fans. I'll come back to that. Uh, over time, ransomware has pivoted from ransomware plus ransom. Now, the ransomware bit is that there is software that encrypts your things. The ransom bit is that your data, instead of just being encrypted locally, is also being exfilled. So someone has a copy of your data. Pay us Bitcoin or we will expose your data. If you pay us Bitcoin, not only will we not expose it, but we'll delete it. Honest. And, and this is where the trouble is, and this is the situation that we've had in Australia over the last month with Medibank, and this is why it's been just such a massive, massive, massive story here. Ransomware crew got in, took the data, looks like they didn't have an opportunity to encrypt it, but they have copies of it which is now being spread out all over the internet. And they tried to ransom Medibank in Australia for 9.7 million US dollars, which has all the headlines here. It says about 15 million Australian dollars, which is a lot. Medibank didn't pay. That's where the data got dumped. And there is discussion at the moment about should we make ransom illegal, paying the ransom illegal? <laughs> Ransoming people is already illegal. You can't do that. But should we make it illegal for a company to pay the ransom? Because the rationale is if it was made illegal, then ransomware crews would know they cannot get paid. Therefore, they would go under greener pastures somewhere else. Now, the bit here about stopping it from being publicly leaked is the absolutely critical pivotal point. 
because the problem in a case like Medibank is if they did pay the ransom, they have no guarantees whatsoever that the product, as I equate that, would be delivered. And the product is that the files would be deleted from the attacker and wouldn't be spread publicly. Obviously, you have no guarantee of that. When it's an attack against availability and your files are encrypted, the product is a key that works and it unlocks your things. You can verify that you have your things back. This is a really, really big difference. Now, there are many responses to this that broke down some themes that I have vehement disagreement with. And I added some of these to a thread. So I'm going to go through what's here in the thread. So there's an argument here that passing a law banning payments would lead to companies just willingly breaking the law. So they're saying, well, why make a law about it? Because the company's going to pay anyway. And it's like, well, why make a law about anything if people are going to break it anyway? You know, well, there's an answer. So first of all, it sets a moral compass for everyone so they know what you can and can't do, what we expect as a society. Second of all, if they do do it and they break the law, then there are repercussions. So that the whole idea of just not having a law because it might get broken anyway is it, it, just nonsensical because why would you have any laws? So that one doesn't hold water. Another one is that it would lead to the non-disclosure of breaches, the assertion being that the ransom would be paid quietly. Now, if we take Medibank as an example, $15 million, publicly listed company. The chances of them being able to pay a ransom quietly without anyone knowing when they have accountability to shareholders and audits up to yin-yang, is basically zero. Like, you're just not going to get away with that. And the, the, the Uber thing came up multiple times. And, and Uber was different insofar as people found a vulnerability and shook them down for money. And Uber went, yeah, yeah, we'll make it a, uh, we'll make it a bug bounty instead of a ransom. We'll give you the money. And then it got really messy because the technology leadership at the time ended up getting charged with uh, obstruction of justice, which was different to the fact that they had a ransom. And hasn't worked out real well for him. But the point being that Uber was an example where they tried to cover something up. And over the course of time, someone, somewhere, blew the whistle. So if it was Medibank paying the ransom and not disclosing, it only takes one person, one person with a moral compass or one person with an axe to grind against the organisation at any time in the future, and you are screwed because not only have you broken the law, but you've concealed it, not just from regulators, but also from your shareholders. So that just doesn't, doesn't really hold water for me as well. There's another bit here about, well, if you ban the ransom, then you're punishing the victim, which is the company itself. And in fact, I'll, I'll group two things together here, because there's an argu another argument as well that came up a lot, which is like, that would be like banning paying a ransom if someone's kidnapped. Now, both of these things don't make sense for, for a very fundamental reason. Let's take the kidnap thing. It's one of my kids who got kidnapped. It's one kid who's been Yes, he's important to me. <laughs> or she's important to me. Either one of them is important to me. But it's one kid being kidnapped. It's an extraordinarily rare thing because you have to have physical presence and you have to take a kicking, screaming kid. And like it's, it is fundamentally different in risk to online ransomware where, according to the Australian Federal Police, it's someone or some people sitting in Russia doing things over the cybers and ransoming your stuff. Very, very, very different situation. Uh, and the impact of paying the ransom, also very different. If you pay the ransom, you get your kid back. Uh, will that crew then go out 
and kidnap other children as a result of that. Uh, I'm not an expert in that space. I've seen some movies. It does seem to be a very, very highly specialized industry, doesn't it? You know, like it's not a lot of physical kidnapping going on. Now, ransomware, on the other hand, as it relates to software and whether it's encryption or whether it's the leaking of public data, happens very extensively. Uh, it happens by individuals on the other side of the world with every expectation that they will get away with it without being caught. And of course, some of them are in countries that safe harbor them. And this is where it's getting very interesting with Russia now. The other thing is, is that in the case of, say, Medibank, it's 9.7 million people who are impacted by this, which is massive. It's a massive, it's not, it's not just my son getting kidnapped. It's 9.7 million people. And the incentives for the government to crack down on that are fundamentally different to the incentives to crack down on the individual kidnap and ransom of a child. Maybe an adult gets ransomed as well. I don't know. The, you see, it's like it, the, the societal cost is such a different thing. So uh, to, to me, it's just a completely different can of worms. Now, this is not to say that I'm like 100%, let's just go and outlaw the ransom stuff either. I think that there are some really, really big issues with that. Uh, and I think some of them I probably haven't even considered. I don't necessarily think we should just turn around tomorrow and go, yep, outlaw the ransoms. But I do think we should have dialogue on it, which is starting to happen at the moment. And I do think that there's certainly a case to be made, particularly with the bit about the leaking of the data. Uh, that, that a ransom outlaw might make a difference. And we do see this a little bit in other parts of the world, particularly in the US, where there might be sanctions against a country and you've got ransomware crews like, well, there's sanctions against us, so the US company can't pay for services from a sanctioned uh, company or a company from a sanctioned country. So that appears to have had some impact, if not for any other reason, than at least to cause the ransomware crew to try and pretend to be from a different part of the world that isn't sanctioned. So clearly government can have some impact on this. All right, let's look at the comments. Uh, get past the front page stuff. Rob says, easy to get an insight of faking external breach, especially if they are the meeting, if they are in the meeting pushing for the company paying the ransom. And I got through like the first line of that and I'm like, ubiquity. You know, so this was someone inside Ubiquity, and this was the whole thing that got very messy with the Krebs story as well. But obviously someone who was inside Ubiquity, responsible for uh, a ransom campaign. Uh, and, and again, you, you kind of wonder, like, if you just if you just outlawed the ransom, how much difference would it have made? George says, damned if you do, damned if you don't. Very true. Stratus, that's like you don't see a bank robbery anymore. Tell you what, I reckon you see a lot more Bitcoin theft. <laughs> it's been the week for that, hasn't it? Or crypto theft or scam or whatever it might have been. Um, it's not a big thing. It's not a big thing in terms of the prevalence and in terms of where it sits compared to digital theft. All right, on the fun one. Let's do something fun to end with. Have I been pwned? Did not get pwned. Holy shit, the fact I even have to talk about this. So I get up yesterday morning, morning before. It's all a blur at the moment. And uh, <laughs> someone has DM'd me this story. Now, I get up early. Like, I get up 4 or 5 a.m. I have some coffee. I'm a little bit groggy. Not everything makes sense straight away. And I'm reading this headline. 
CyberAttack on Have I Been Pwned leaks email data to hackers, and this is on Cybersecurity Insiders. And I'm like, what? Have I Been Pwned serves as a platform for those who can search for email. Go halfway through reading it, and I've got a pop up over the top. Sign up for your weekly. Screw you guys. Serves as a platform for those who can search for their email address to find whether it was accessed by hackers via a data breach. But what if the platform itself gets infiltrated and leaks the whole of its database to cyber crooks? Well, comma, unconfirmed. What professional news story begins a paragraph with well, comma? Unconfirmed reports state that the entire database owned by the Microsoft the the Microsoft Regional Director Troy Hunt was hacked by cyber criminals through an unknown vulnerability. It's also unknown to me. And the whole of the data is in hands of threat actors. When I say in the hands, in hands of threat actors who are now indulging in an extra very indulgent threat actors, indulging in an extortion campaign, threatening to leak the information if their demand for bitcoins remains unheeded. Troy is yet to confirm the incident. That's because you haven't asked me, you dickhead. But one of the social media posts acknowledged it to a certain extent, exclamation mark. I'm just going to finish reading because it's not that much longer. And it's, it's like if you're driving the car now, listening to this as a podcast, you're laughing. It's entertaining. Hackers have released a news update that they now own the database filled with millions of email addresses that will later be sold to the highest bidder if the non-profit organization doesn't bow to their demands. There is so much wrong in that one sentence. Wait, the threat doesn't end there. Here. <laughs> it begins a paragraph with a wait comma. As the threat actors added to their statement that they will start informing customers and business partners of the website about the hack to tarnish the image of the website on an international note. The hackers seem to work with a vengeance as they are threatening to use black hat SEO techniques to de-index the website in all countries so that the website loses traffic forever. A demand for $2,500 Bitcoin, you mean in Bitcoin? has been made by the criminals. And if Troy and his staff, Michelle and I, miss the payment within a time frame of 72 hours, all the above data, all the above stated threat tactics are sure to be implemented. New hacking group named Team Monsanto has taken the claim of the attack and is apparently being linked to Lapsus Ransomware Group. You absolute dickhead. Like this is the, this is the dumbest news story in InfoSec that I have seen. I've seen some dumb ones. I've seen for a while. There's certainly nothing else that's immediately coming to mind. And I read this, and when I, you know what, where, where the penny dropped? The penny dropped when I got to the $2,500 bit. I was like, I know where this is from. And this is in my tweet thread. So nine days ago, I tweeted a much light 1,349 likes image of one of these spammy, scammy ransom threats you've probably all gotten. You know, you've been, we have seen you enjoying yourself in front of your computer and we have video of it. <laughs> so I got this and, uh, and I shared it and I was just like face palm, you idiots. Uh, and everyone loved it and they thought it was hilarious. And this journalist, air quoting this guy now, took that with me clearly saying that they're idiots and then everyone chiming in going, yeah, I got one of these two idiots and has written a story out of it. 
That's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. I'm looking at the comments. <laughs> George is like, what am I listening to? Roland says, just be sure to load all the HIV feed data to HIV feed market all is confirmed. And I, I'm thinking in my mind, it's like, do I do just like a select into, select star from self kind of, you know, and just like reload the whole lot? Uh, idiots, idiots, idiots. Okay. I think I'm going to leave it on that very lighthearted note. Uh, look, thanks very much for listening. We've been going, what are we at now? 44 minutes or something. Uh, Next week I will be, in fact, it will be this time next week plus a few hours, I will be in Oslo uh, and I will be back in Europe for uh, a long time, weeks, many weeks, back back in Europe and Asia. And I'll, I'll share more about where I'm going, what we're doing later on. So I, I will keep doing these videos. It will be on my remote gear. It will probably, the next one, uh, it'll obviously be on Oslo time. I think it's probably going to end up being being a Saturday morning thing. Many of us know what it's like to be jet-lagged. I have a recollection of what it's like to be jet-lagged. It's been a few years since I've had that. So it might be a Saturday morning thing. But uh, look, we'll keep these going. And I I just need to get, <laughs> get through like another six days of looking after myself for the first time in almost three years, which still feels really freaking weird. Thanks very much for watching. I will see you from the other side of the world next week.